Okay, Andy. Okay, this is a now 66-year-old lady who came to see me several years ago, actually in third opinion. She had already had her lumpectomy when she came to see me in June of 2004, and she had an invasive lobular carcinoma. When she had her lumpectomy, the tumor measured five centimeters, and she had two negative sentinel nodes. How was it picked up? She had a palpable lump. And again, this was a professional woman. She had a PhD. She was a chemist. She actually makes skincare products with her husband, and she has a well-known product, and she distributes a lot, so she travels a lot, and she's very busy. And she felt it herself? She felt the lump, and then when she finally went in, you know, it was lobular, so I'm not quite sure exactly, since she came to me after the surgery was done, how long it took for her to get in and finally get everything worked up, but I think it was a surprise to her. What was her family situation? She's married, she has grown children, and as I said, she and her husband are very busy distributing these skincare products, and also, you know, manufacturing. What was her state of mind? She was a very calm person, a very bright woman. Actually, as I said, she came to see me in third opinion. She had gone to see another physician who recommended chemotherapy. She did not want chemotherapy. She went to see someone in second opinion who recommended dose-dense chemotherapy. And again, she did not want chemotherapy. So she was kind of doctor shopping for someone who was not going to poison her. And could you give more about the tumor variables? So she was ER positive. She was PR negative and HER2 new negative. And again, you know, she was lymph node negative. I think actually we'll turn to Andy. Tumor size again? It was five centimeters. Five centimeters, node negative. Node negative. How many sentinel nodes were removed? Two. Okay. That happens, but not commonly. (laughs) Did you have a good cosmetic result from the lumpectomy? Yes. She was treated by breast conserving surgery for a five centimeter tumor. Yes. She had large breasts? Yes. So, Andy, she's had two doctors say she needs chemotherapy, and she's coming to you. So, you know, here I think today's dilemma is how can I assess this woman's risk? The only bad thing here about this breast cancer is that it's large. It hasn't spread to sentinel lymph nodes. ERPR are positive and HER2 are negative. How are you factoring in the lobular part of this? In terms of risk estimation, I'm probably not thinking about that as being a variable to predict the risk of distant metastasis. I mean, just in general, I don't think we think about it much other than the type of metastasis, et cetera. There are some reports that lobular cells may be more stealthy in axillary nodes. So I do worry about whether the assessment of the axilla really reflects the true status that she may really be a node-positive patient who we're missing I would agree with that completely, I think. And the one question about the five centimeters, was this actually a five centimeter mass? And you may not know that because you didn't see her initially. My experience with lobular cancers is that they typically are mammographically indistinct and they often arise when there's a palpable mass and they typically are more pervasive in the breast. So actually, I'm very nervous about a five centimeter lobular cancer that's had a lumpectomy. And the question is, is there residual disease in the breast? Number one, that's one concern. Actually, might recommend an MRI in this person, although MRI may be a little less sensitive for lobular compared to infiltrating ductal. Also concerned, as Andy is, about the issue of having small deposits in the node, which are difficult to pick up. So the question is, did they do IHC on the node, or was it H&E only? So that would be the other concern. Do you know that? It was both negative. And she had her surgery done in Santa Monica by a very well-known breast surgeon. And so there was quite adequate margins. And I did have a chance to review the pathology myself. I believe he's been on a number of our programs, as a matter of fact. (laughs) She had good surgery. I guarantee that. But Andy, let's get back to the chemo and obviously the oncotype issue here. 
So you've already taken the leap that she needs chemo, so I won't even suggest that anybody here would not give her chemotherapy, although she does actually fit the criteria for patients who are eligible for the Taylor RX trial. So if you decided to take this postmenopausal woman with node-negative ER-positive breast cancer and do an oncotype test and you got back a low recurrence score, one would have to contend with what to do with that information. And could you just briefly review the eligibility and design of the Taylor X trial? So for patients who have ER-positive node-negative breast cancer and tumors that are 1.1 to 5 centimeters, or patients who have tumors that are even as small as 5 millimeters but have other unfavorable features, lymphovascular invasion, poor histological grade, these patients would have treatment assigned as a function of their oncotype DX recurrence score, the primary study group being those patients who have an intermediate recurrence score of 11 to 25, where the randomization is to anti-estrogen therapy of choice, that is based on physician and patient choice, or the same plus chemotherapy. The high-risk recurrence scores would all get chemotherapy and hormones. The low-risk would get just anti-estrogen therapy alone. And of course, implicit in this is the algorithm. As you say, recurrent score is low. They don't get chemo. They just get hormones. If it's high, they're going to get chemo plus hormones. Right. I think we don't have a large amount of data on how the recurrent score performs in patients with tumors of this size. This is not a common setting of five centimeter node negative breast cancer. So actually, I would probably not be wanting to oncotype this tumor or think about She's the Taylor PhD Rx trial. In chemistry. Did she know about the oncotype? This is 2004. Did the patient know about it? No, she did not know about Oncotype DX at that time. Were you using it at that time? Yes, I was using it at that time. And what were you thinking? Well, it was very interesting because I had just actually attended a meeting where I had an opportunity to present this case. And so I took the opportunity to present her to see how people would treat her. We had a great panel at that time. So the Oncotype was kind of just getting started then? just getting started, and they had some hypothetical cases to present. And I raised my hand, and I said, do you mind if I just present some of my own cases that I'm really thinking about using this test? So you had just seen her? I had just seen her. I had another case, actually. I presented two cases to them. I mean, she was looking for a reason not to get chemo, but do you think if you said to her, listen, there is no reason you need chemo, would she have taken it? Yes, she would have. Yes. But she just wanted to be 100% sure she needed it. Yes, yes. So at any rate, the panel at that time thought that she would be a good candidate for Oncotype, although it was a larger tumor. These were investigators? These were investigators. Mm Mm-hmm. So I went back to her, and I gave her the option and explained oncotype testing to her and told her what the results would be able to tell us and if she wanted to go ahead and have that test. Based on if it came back as a high recurrence score, she would accept chemotherapy. And she said, yes, please test it. So what did you see? Her recurrence score at that time was 15. So it was considered a low score. So she wanted to just be treated with hormonal therapy. Although, you know, it was approaching intermediate, it was still low recurrence score. It gave her a recurrence risk of 10%. Yeah, just to comment on the brackets, the initial low recurrence score that was used for the validation in the NSABP trials went up to... 18. 18, right. And, and that's was, the one that's on the test down, when you get it. Right, to 11. So this probably would have translated to a 10-year relapse-free survival with tamoxifen alone of, I'm guessing, about 10 or 12% 10%. or so. 10%. And she was okay with, yes. with just anti-estrogen therapy alone. So she was going to leave out on the table a few percent possibility of avoiding relapse by taking chemotherapy. 
Yes. Alan? Andy, my understanding is that in the validation trial, there wasn't any benefit shown to chemo over tamoxifen alone in the patients with a low recurrence score. So it's not just that they have a low chance of recurrence. In fact, chemotherapy didn't seem to add any benefit in those patients with a low recurrence score. And I don't know that low has been redefined. I mean, Taylor X has a different definition for a lot of reasons that relate to the trial. But as far as I know, the actual low has not been changed. It's still the limit of 18, correct? That's correct. I agree with Alan. I think it's interesting that the test is not only prognostic, but it was predictive, at least in those data sets. Now, the chemotherapy in B20 that was used for the validation was either CMF or MF, you know, regimen that no one uses, so relatively inferior chemotherapy. The other point is that actually in the high recurrence score, there seemed to be little benefit from tamoxifen. So conversely, you may be defining groups that are both hormone positive and hormone resistant. My read was benefit, but not as much. It was like not no benefit. Andy, I didn't ask you which chemo specifically do you think you would recommend to her? I still am somebody who does use CMF, and that's probably what I would use in this setting given that she has HER2 negative disease. I'm influenced by the results of individual analyses such as the analysis of B15 with respect to CMF or AC and HER2 status and Alessandro Gennari's meta-analysis of anthracycline versus non-anthracycline studies that she presented last December in San Antonio showing that across a reasonable number of studies, I think it was about eight studies and about 5,000 patients, that the group of patients who seem to really benefit from including an anthracycline in a lower-risk situation are those patients with HER2-positive disease. So I'm sure there are people at this table who would think about other regimens, AC, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide, but for me... CMF without alopecia, without neuropathy, without significant nausea still represents a good option for the patient who primarily is going to benefit from an aromatase inhibitor. I just want to find out first, before we get to some of these questions, specifically what you think you would do in this situation, Lee. I'm actually also using CMF in patients who we do on type testing. No recurrent score, no Taylor X study. For a patient with node negative disease, I would use either TC or FEC 100 are the two regimens I've been using. So you would not order Nocotype and you would not offer Taylor X? No, I think in this case, Nocotype was most appropriate. And with that result, if the patient's wishes were not to receive chemotherapy, I'd be very comfortable with a low recurrent score, a recurrent score of 10%. The other thing I tell women now is that that's based on tamoxifen use. So basically, with aromatase inhibition, you're expecting a 20% improvement over tamoxifen. So you're actually cutting them below that 10%, which I tend to use as the arbitrary boundary. And I want to use this case as a way to talk about some of the issues in adjuvant endocrine therapy as well. So I just want to be clear then. So you would say to the patient, I'm okay with not getting chemo. Without a recurrent score, would you still say the same thing? The one other thing I would do in this, especially to help the patient understand the benefits of chemotherapy, is to show her the results of adjuvant online. And particularly someone who has a science background, they might respond to looking at the actual risk reductions. Incidentally, how did she respond in terms of information? Was she out on the internet and reading stuff? Or was she like, you're the doctor, tell me what to do? You know, it's interesting because she really wasn't bringing a lot of information to me. She knew her options And she basically, now that I had some technology to present to her to help make a reason, rather than just saying, this is what we always do, she was able to accept it. But she was not doing a lot on her own. Did she have any particular concern about chemotherapy, alopecia, or was it not being able to work? Did she verbalize what that was? She did not want poison in her body. 
California. There you go. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> I hear about your patients, Andy. You know, we get kind of a different story. And Alan? Clearly the patient's bias. I don't like chemo either, incidentally. I'm not sure I heard that or maybe you mentioned it, but I wasn't listening about her bias against chemotherapy prior to my comments about ordering the Oncotype test. Certainly if a patient comes in with that mindset, I'm going to look for reasons not to give her chemotherapy. And this would be perhaps the most robust way of being able to do that. So you would be open then to sending an Oncotype This would be the one setting, I think, for a five-centimeter tumor where the patient's particular bias was against chemotherapy. In my practice in Manhattan, it's often in the other direction. The five-centimeter node-negative breast cancer patient wants anthracycline and taxane, and she wants to go on our bevacizumab trial. She's not arguing with me about whether she wants to avoid chemotherapy completely. Would you have felt more comfortable if the recurrence score was like seven or eight? As opposed to? As opposed to? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah, I think I would. But you'd still be okay at 15, saying okay, as long as you understand it, that's okay. Yeah, I think if you look at the amount of data that exists for patients in terms of outcomes whose tumors are this size as a function of oncotype, it's not a very large experience to date. We've done a lot of meetings for surgeons over the years, and we were at the American Society of Breast Surgeons this year, and we always like to do poll questions. And so the first question I asked was, do oncologists use too much chemo? about the right amount of chemo or not enough in patients with no negative tumors. And I've asked that before at other meetings and had the number one answer was too much chemo. At this meeting in April, the most common answer was just about right. From surgeons answering From surgeons. the question? And I think it's because now they feel like we're kind of doing more science in making the decision. Alan? Andy, in view of the Jones AC versus TC data, is there any reason why to ever give CMF? If you know the TC is better than AC and you don't have to give an anthracycline, why should we be using CMF anymore? Okay, I will answer that question. First of all, it is one trial. It is a well-conducted prospective trial involving over 1,000 patients, but it simply is one trial. When you think about the amount of evidence that it took physicians to begin to think about using anthracyclines a few decades ago, there are about 12 trials, about 10 or 11,000 patients, and even the meta-analysis of all those studies showed a fairly modest benefit for anthracycline versus non-anthracycline therapy, which now seems to be largely driven by HER2 and perhaps TOPO2 as a marker of sensitivity. So for me, for the HER2-negative patient, CMF is still as good as AC, TC is better than AC in one trial. And for many patients, alopecia is an issue, neuropathy is an issue. So I think TC is a very justifiable regimen to use in this woman, but I think there are others to discuss. Just to put a plug in for our Think Tank audio, I will tell you that Dennis Lehman said adjuvant anthracyclines are over. I do not use them. I don't use them in node positive. There is no reason to use anthracyclines anymore obviously led to an interesting discussion, and you can listen to it. Lee? If you're using an oncotype, CMF was the comparator there, and the results in the high-risk group, at least, for CMF were very, very good compared to tamoxifen alone. So I think there's actually data to drive that. In my practice, I used to offer CMF versus AC for patients with low risk, and because of the alopecia issue, 90% of patients chose CMF. So we'll see what happens when we're offering TC versus CMF in the group going forward. So, Andy, what happened? You got the recurrent score. What was the discussion with the patient? She said, good, I told you I didn't need chemo. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we talked about it. You know, clearly we went over all of her, everything that we could know about risks and benefits. But she felt that this helped validate hormonal therapy. She was happy to accept hormonal therapy and local radiation. And what hormonal therapy did you discuss with her? 
Well, I discuss the AIs, as was mentioned before, particularly in local control. Now, we, that was 2004, and I think the sentiment has increased quite a bit since we see that in our patterns of care studies. But at that point, what were you thinking in terms of risks and benefits of an AI versus tamoxifen in this situation? Well, clearly understanding that the data was with the tamoxifen trials. However, just trying again just to extrapolate what we had seen with the AIs versus tamoxifen, I felt that her benefit would be increased using an AI, hoping that the research would catch up with all of that. So, you know, there was a lot more controversy in 2004, Lee, about this decision, I think. But can you kind of reflect back on how it's evolved since attack December 2001 in terms of this decision of long-term strategy of endocrine therapy in postmenopausal women? So attack, of course, was a comparison of upfront AI versus tamoxifen and actually a third arm, which combined the two, which was no better. And then in very rapid succession, we had two other strategies that were presented that also showed favorable results for an AI, which was a switching strategy after two to three years of tamoxifen and then extended adjuvant use with AI after five years of tamoxifen. All of these studies and several others, particularly in the switching strategy, all showing the same relative benefit to AI. So very rapidly, I think the community has altered the approach so that most patients are receiving an AI up front. The other point that should be made that there were concerns about toxicities of AI versus tamoxifen. The acute toxicity seemed to be less for AIs compared to tamoxifen across the board. And the biggest concern with AIs was on bone health. And although there was some decrease in bone density when looked at, it appears it can be abrogated with the use of bisphosphonates. And in terms of long-term effects, or at least medium-term effects on bone health over the first several years, there don't seem to be a tremendous safety issue with AIs. So right now in your practice, in a non-protocol setting, what situations, if any, would you start tamoxifen in a postmenopausal woman? The places I don't start an AI in postmenopausal women are patients who have clear-cut osteoporosis. I tend to screen all women who are starting an AI with a DEXA scan to see what their bone density is. I typically start an AI with calcium and vitamin D. I think that's important for postmenopausal patients in general, and particularly those on AI. I also ask the question, do you have a prescription benefit plan? when I talk to patients with an AI, because there are older patients who simply can't afford spending $200 a month if they have no benefit plan. And in those cases, if they can't afford it, I would consider tamoxifen as well. Andy, one of the things that's been kind of interesting to observe over the years as these days evolve is there have been these dueling models, one from Dana-Farber and Hal Burstein, the other from the UK with Jack Husick. Even at ASCO, again, they had two more papers that came out on that, trying to figure out in the long run, what would be better therapy? And then and people started to focus on the first two or three years as the peak, you know, the whole concept of the natural history of ER positive disease was that there were late relapses, but there were still relapses occurring the first two, three years, the highest point of relapse, which was decreased with the anastrozole. What's been your take about these sort of Talmudic discussions? I don't want to say much ado about nothing because I think there is something there, but right now we don't know how the reverse sequence might perform, that is AI first tamoxifen second compared to the other sequence. In the absence of that piece of the puzzle, which we'll get from the big 198 trial eventually, we're confronted with the dilemma of should everybody start with an AI up front and get your maximal annual reduction in the odds of recurrence in year one and year two, as well as in years three and five? Or is there some benefit to starting with tamoxifen? Does tamoxifen priming, quote unquote, 
enhance the efficacy in a sequential approach to be followed by aromatase inhibitor. So my bias is in a patient like this that was presented to use an aromatase inhibitor, and in my practice, about 90% of such patients will. The 10% who I will use tamoxifen are the patients, as Lee said, who have pre-existing osteoporosis. They're already on bisphosphonate, where you're weighing the potential risks and benefits of relapse in the first few years versus the risk of vertebral fracture or hip fracture. I generally go directly to AIs up front. Okay, so Andy, what happened to this woman? Bring us up to date. Sure. She's had her definitive radiation therapy for local control. She continues on Arimidex, is doing beautifully, and has no evidence of disease. Any problems with the uh, anastrozole? Any arthralgias? She happens to be doing well on it. Zero? Zero. Any problems that you can detect at all? No, none. Before going to the next case, I conducted our third and final instant patterns of care survey, this time relevant to the last case, asking the attendees for what fraction of postmenopausal women in their practices they initiated adjuvant endocrine therapy with an AI, and of those who start an AI, what fraction need to be switched to another agent because of arthralgias. Here are the answers. I'd say about 75% AI. The other 25%, some of them with an intent to switch after two years to an AI, and about 15% of the time, patients won't tolerate the AI. Initially, 90% an AI, 10% tamoxifen, and I have to change 10% of my AIs. Virtually everybody gets an AI, and I'd probably say 20 to 30%. 90% with an AI, 10% switch. 80% AI, 20% switch. 95% AI, 20% switch. Say probably 95% AI. I think I've only written one tamoxifen prescription in the last three years, and probably 30% switch. 90% AI is 10% tamoxifen. However, I have to switch about 50% of my 50%. I do. I probably about 40 to 50% I end up switching. I would say 90% AI, and I call it the AI shuffle. I have lots of people switching, probably close to 50%. Wow. Which you never see in the metastatic setting, by the way. 95% AI, at about 30% I'll have to switch. Occasionally stop. 85 AI, 15 TAM, mostly because of osteoporosis. Switching would be somewhere between 10 and 15. Andy? I'd say 90% AI up front, 20% switch, 2 to 3% stop completely. They withdraw. Lee? 90% AI and 20% switch, and that's based on a survey we did of five practices and presented at San Antonio. We actually looked at 200 patients in five community practices. 20% of AI patients first line switched. The majority, 80 to 90% switched to a second AI and some to tamoxifen. Were you able to tease out what fraction of that was related to arthralgias? Yes, the vast majority was related to myalgias and arthralgias. Alan? Are there any concerns about long-term cardiovascular disease with AIs? Lee, can you update us on that? Yeah, there was a report, uh, I believe it was on MA17, or there may have been... Right, with Alan Coates. Yeah, Alan Coates did a report on that. And in uh, analysis of the tamoxifen versus letrozole in that study, there was a significant, although very small number, increase of grade 3 to 5 cardiovascular events. So it's a small signal, but it was there. Now, on the thromboembolic, it was actually significant for tamoxifen, as you would expect, on all grades and also grade 3 to 5. The absolute number of severe cardiac events was small in a fairly large study, but it at least is something that needs to be explored and to be followed later on. We don't know the 10, 15, 20-year effects of these drugs yet. Any take on the other AIs? We saw that signal 
in the trial there with letrozole. There was initially something also with XMS staying in the switching trial. Attack, I'm not sure that they actually saw that. Yeah, but I think you have to be very careful there because it depends on how the data was collected and what the specific questions and what the AEs were actually enumerated on in study. And there were variations. So I think it's a little bit premature to compare drugs across those studies and say that their toxicities are different because it has to do with the vagaries of research collection. What would you say if the patient said to you, what about a cardiovascular event with NAI? Would you say, we don't know, or would you give a number? I would say we don't know, because to know that, you would have to have trials of AI versus placebo. Well, you know, I guess in the one where we have that is the, in addition, in terms of letrozole, the MA-17 trial, which was a continuation, obviously. Right, right, which but, we do have. And they didn't see that, my understanding was there. Yeah, I think we're looking primarily at changes in lipid profiles, if I'm not mistaken, rather than hard numbers of well, cardiac those were, deaths. Those were true cardiac events Okay, well, in that particular case. Is there a difference in the incidence of arthralgias when you use the AI in a metastatic setting versus adjuvant setting? I think that's a really good point, and I think it has to do with patient perception rather than with perhaps intrinsic drug metabolism. And so actually arthralgias are not that uncommon in tamoxifen-treated patients either on those studies. And if you go back and you look at the original P1 study where prevention tamoxifen versus placebo, the incidence of adverse events with placebo were up there in the 20 to 30 percent range. So people who are postmenopausal, men and women, I think it's not sex-related, have aches and pains, and sometimes they're attributed to a drug, and sometimes they're related to the drug, and we just can't ferret that out. I think women who have metastatic disease are more focused on a treatment that's actually helping their disease rather than preventing the possibility, and so they respond differently. Carolyn? I'm just finding that a higher proportion of the women that I treat with aromatase inhibitors are discontinuing because of sexual side effects. I think it's a little bit more of a word-of-a-mouth situation. Women are reporting very profound vaginal dryness. A lot of my visit is spent talking about the controversy of the vaginal hormone replacement therapy use. I think everyone here is aware of that. And so I'm actually finding a shift, and they're more accepting of the achy joints, because I discussed that up front. But once they hit a brick wall with what they think is significant vaginal dryness, that's becoming a stronger indication to discontinue continue the medication. Has this woman mentioned that to you or have you asked her about it? She hasn't complained about it. You know, certainly I go through this with a lot of my patients, but she happens to be very lucky tolerating it well. Lee was telling about this tablet thing that he's developed and to get data from patients in the waiting room. And one thing that'd be interesting, you know, maybe sexual side effects that maybe we're a little uncomfortable about bringing up or we forget to bring up if it were part of a routine data that you're gathering might be interesting to see. You know, maybe sometimes patients are having problems we don't know about it. Anything you want to say about that tablet, just very briefly, and something I thought it was really cool? Well, yeah, we've developed a system called the Patient Care Monitor, which screens patients electronically every time they come to the office. And we have that in 100 practices now around the country. We've been using it in our practice for about six years. So we have over a million determinations on several hundred thousand patients. And clearly, you're absolutely right. If you look across all patients and women who have finished therapy or are on therapy, actually sexual dysfunction and insomnia are the two issues, which probably reflects the general population as well. But I totally agree that that's an issue that's very difficult to deal with because we don't know whether we should give back any hormones in patients who are on AI, whether we should use estering or use a small amount of vaginal estrogen. We're all very nervous about that. There's no good data on that, I believe. Are you nervous to the point that you literally will not do it? No, I think it's an individual decision with 
with a woman and if they come in and they're distressed about sexual function and that's clearly impacting, I think you have to do a trade-off and see if you can use the minimal amount of estrogen and improve the problem. Well, I really want to get on to Alan's case, but I've got to ask one more question, which is this lady's now three years on uh, Nastrozole? Yes. Doing fine. Like yes. Taking a pill. So two years from now, she's still doing fine, just taking a pill. Are you going to stop or continue? I will stop it. Lee? There's, of course, the extended data, which is MA17, which is now re-randomized to an additional five years of AI versus stopping. We don't and have also B4, NSAVP B42 that she could maybe enter at that point. I'm tending to recommend extended AI for patients who were node positive to begin with and are tolerating their AI well. Andy? If you truly believe that her outcome is going to be reflected in her recurrence score, then it's low at the outset. And I think after five years in the absence of data, I wouldn't extrapolate from MA17 in this node-negative patient. I would stop at five years. How are her bones doing, incidentally? They're fine. They're fine. I monitor. She's been doing fine. A lot of my women that are osteopenic, I'll go ahead and just start them on some oral biphosphonates. So she had normal bone density? Yes. Uh-huh. How often are you getting at bone density on her? Every other year. Every other year. Lead, I think that and now, I guess, since it was ASCO 2006, the data from the ATTACK trial suggesting that people who start out with normal bone density, that they maybe could get densities every couple of years. Is that what you're doing at this point? I'm doing that, but it's driven more by the fact that Medicare will only reimburse every 24 months rather than yearly. I mean, it's a simple test and wouldn't mind doing it yearly on patients. Assuming, again, the same situation, you tell her, you know, I think you can stop now. Do you think she'll be okay with that or is she going to be a little bit nervous? I think she will be fine with it, you know, unless there is any other data that happens to come up. And I always tell my ladies, we'll know in five years what we're going to do. I think she'll be fine stopping. Do you think she might be interested in going into a trial, randomizing between AI not like NSABP 42 or the continuation of MA17? I think I would be able to talk her into going to a trial. No, you can't talk her into it. You just. <laughs> <laughs> I think if she were presented with the be able to go into a trial, I do believe that she would be the one to participate. Be a great, I think it's a great trial for patients. You know, it's an important question. It's not like, I mean, I think... Taylor X is kind of tricky. Have you put patients on that study? Or no, I haven't yet. Anybody here? We were talking about that before. Carolyn, how do they respond to chemo versus not? It's very challenging and it's very time intensive. And it's always more than one sit down to try to get them around. If you had to guess how many people you presented it to and how many people said yes. I may have presented it recently to 10 patients. I actually have five women on the trial. I had one withdrawal when she received an intermediate recurrence score and refused a randomization after a lot of upfront discussion. So five on, two have been randomized to endocrine therapy alone, three have received chemotherapy, and one who withdrew after the randomization in spite of a lot of upfront discussion. So what was she randomized to, the one that pulled out? Chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy. Hmm. Interesting. And so what's the end there? How many people do you present it to and how many say yes? I would say... Of the eligible patients, I have about one in three that has agreed to do it with multiple visits. One in three. One That's in three. even higher than I thought. I've heard people say, you know, maybe one in ten, but low. I think it's people? about one out of three for us. Too. One out of three. Well, you know, just I haven't really looked at the numbers. But. I mean, that's a tough thing to think of. We used to have trials like that all the time, but we haven't had that in breast cancer in a long time. It's just, you know, you walk in and 
find out the computer you're going to get chemo or not. It's kind of tough. Well, I still think that people are going to think of it as a free oncotype test, and they might drop out when they get randomized to the inter, you know. Is the that what's actually group. happening? Yes. You'd have to ask the NSABP, but I would surmise I mean, your that they're going to have. No, we haven't had that happen. I mean, you're able practice. to get it reimbursed in most of your patients. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Alan? Yes, just as far as use of the recurrence score. Leah, are you sending the recurrence score on all your node-negative ER-positive patients? Is there any upper limit of size where you're saying, I would not send the recurrence score at all? I'm certainly not doing it on every patient. And one likes to look at the standard parameters, ERP and HER2, and grade, I think, is important. So for a small, low-grade ER PR, strongly positive tumor, I'm taking the leap and saying those patients who are in a 70-year-old, I'll treat with hormonal therapy alone. I think the patients I use it mostly are those that have intermediate-sized tumors and who have grade 2 tumors. Or occasionally, if it's a grade 3 tumor and it's a patient who doesn't want chemotherapy, as the scenario presented, that we want to look at the recurrence score and define it. I'm not comfortable, based on the data, typically sending it on patients that have tumors greater than 3 or 4 centimeters. Although it sounds like based on the way you responded to this woman, if you have a patient who understands what's going on and wants to see it, you're open to it. Absolutely. Interesting. Pat? I think I try to use the oncotype more in that perimenopausal subset because if you use adjuvant online, if they're under 50, it's always weighted toward chemo. And if they're over 50, it's weighted toward hormonal therapy. So in that group that's in the around 50-ish where they have borderline tumors, that's where I find the oncotype DX most helpful. You know, we're starting to see surveys of how Oncotype affects clinical decision-making. It's interesting. Like, there was one at ASCO. And my take is, in some of these reports, maybe one out of four cases, it changes what people would do without the Oncotype. And the interesting thing is, it's not just that they avoid chemo, which is what you might guess. Or maybe a similar number who get chemo who wouldn't get it otherwise. And it'd be nice to think that we're going to avoid some relapses this way. I mean, people with small and no negative tumors relapse and die, and we can pick them out and reduce that. If 75% relative reduction holds up, it's a pretty significant benefit. 